Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 3, Episode 8, Lock and Key, Volume 1. Welcome to Lovecraft. I know that's a long one. That was a long one, but I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie, but today a comic, whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media, all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. As always, horror is a diverse genre, and all are welcome. And before we get into the comic that we're talking about today, we'll go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? Well, today, so we're here at the beginning of 2024, and we are all horror fans, so we thought today that we could talk about uh, what each of us are excited about for this new year as far as it comes to what's coming out in horror. So what are you guys excited about? Well, I'm pretty excited to see the newest installment in the Silent Hill story. Um, I think that's supposed to come out in April, I want to say, and I'm stoked for that because I love me some Pyramid Head. He's awesome. Um, and also, I know that we, you know, debated the original and most of us agreed that it wasn't horror, but I'm wondering if maybe that uh, the Bill Skarsgård reboot of The Crow, if that's going to be leaning more into horror territory. So stay tuned. We'll see. Yeah, uh, that was on my list too, The Crow. I'm excited to see uh, how how Bill Skarsgård does with it. I think he could be a great a great person for that role. Uh, He's other just things so for cool. Me, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he has the look, and uh, yeah, anyways. Um, other things for me are I'm really excited about, well, I'm uh, reserved. <laughs> My excitement is a little reserved on Alien Romulus. I really like the Alien franchise on the whole. Um, but there's definitely been some misfires for me on that. Uh, so I guess we'll see how that goes. I hope it's good. I'm excited to see it, I guess. <laughs> uh, other things for me are uh, I'm curious about Beetlejuice 2. Uh, I, uh, on another Bill Skarsgård note, I'm excited about the Nosferatu uh, one that he's going to be playing in. Um, so oh, there's I that. forgot about that one. Yeah, yeah. I I think it could be really good. Again, he seems like he could be really good yeah. for that role. Yeah. Are they shooting it in black and white? I wonder because I just want to watch it because that that's one of my favorite horror films ever. And I'm, yeah, agree. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Uh, by all means, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if they're shooting it in black and white. That would be kind of really cool if they did, though. I guess I wouldn't be surprised if they did because it's... Robert Eggers and he did um, the lighthouse in true black and white, not like just filmed it in color and digitally made it black and white, but actually filmed in black and white. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did Nosferatu the same way. Cause I'm sure he learned a lot of ticks or uh, tricks and things on that one. That could be really cool. Um, I think there's a couple others that I'm somewhat interested in. Uh, like Lisa Frankenstein looks interesting. Looks like it could be a fun time. And then the Arcadian, which is a Nicolas Cage one, uh, which I don't, I haven't seen a lot about it, but at least the concept sounded interesting to me. So uh, yeah, those are mine. What was the concept on that one? I'm not familiar with it. 
Uh, it's like uh, post-apocalyptic and like he, I don't know, you know, sometime after the apocalypse basically and he's surviving on like a farm with a couple of his kids uh, and uh, something like it sounded like like one of his kids like made a mistake and kind of uh, alerted like whatever the monsters are out there and kind of put them on their radar. So then they have to deal with whatever the monster is. I don't, like I said, I don't know a lot about it yet, but like some sort of monsters out there killing things. So anyways, that's about all I know about it. Okay. So for me, uh, the couple ones that I was interested in is there's going to be a new quiet place movie, uh, a quiet place day one. It's called, and I think it's supposed to be sort of a prequel. Um, I really like those movies. I like the first and the second one, and I think uh, it's just interesting to see a post-apocalyptic kind of world where people are surviving, and it's a sort of unique take. Um, So I'm interested to see that. And then, I don't know exactly... I was looking at the... um, this the strangers movie um i guess it's like a reboot of of a f- another one but they're supposed to release like all three of them in the same year um so i think that that could be really interesting my horror fan hot take on the strangers is said so the first two movies the original ones i didn't really like the first one that much i know everybody was really excited about it but I felt like the characters just made such stupid decisions that I had a hard time getting behind them. <laughs> and then I think most people were disappointed by two, but I really liked two's kind of uh, retro 80s feel to it. At least I felt like that was there. I I don't know. I thought that one was pretty good, but apparently my viewpoint on the Strangers franchise thus far is the opposite to most people. So I don't know. We'll see what these new ones are like. I'm kind of curious about that too. I, I hope that they're good because they're going to release three of them. So, <laughs> Yeah, it'd be uh, pretty sad if you announced a trilogy of films and say release the first of that trilogy and have it go so bad that your director was fired or decided to leave before the second one. I'm looking at you, Exorcist franchise. Wah, wah. That's fair. For me, I guess, um, so I'm excited about Alien Romulus 2. That one I feel a little bit weird about because I think that Fetty Alvarez did such a good job on the Evil Dead 2013 film. But I guess, I don't know, I wasn't as excited about Don't Breathe. And I was really let down by Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I guess I'm pretty apprehensive about that. But I think like Joe, it also stems from being burnt by some of these alien sequels that have come out so i don't know i'm i'll see it for sure but i'm a little uncertain and then i had nosferatu on my list i had lisa frankenstein on my list as well so i won't belabor the point on those uh maxine comes out this year which is be the third film in ty west's x trilogy being x pearl and now maxine so i'm kind of excited to see what happens with that although i guess mia goth is being sued maybe for some of her conduct on that film and extra says that she was 
she intentionally kicked him and injured him maybe. So I don't know what's going to happen with that or if it'll affect the movie's release or anything, but I guess we'll see for that. Uh, then there's uh, Late Night with the Devil, which has uh, David Dastmalshin. I'm not sure exactly how best to say that. And he played the spot in The Suicide Squad, I guess was his biggest, most recent claim to fame. Um, I'm kind of curious to see what that one's like. It has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes now from people that saw it at various film festivals. So it sounded pretty cool. It was kind of like a supposed to be a talk show in the 70s where they're supposed to maybe have like this possessed girl on it and things go awry which i don't know it sounded interesting at least and then it's not a movie but the other thing i'm excited about this year is for phantasm fans uh there hasn't been a lot going on new for a while but don coscarelli has written a new book called fiction spelled with a ph in phantasm style that has going to feature six short stories that kind of go into some background of some of the characters from the various films in the franchise. So I'm pretty excited about that. And that comes out just in March. So I don't know. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out this year. I'm kind of excited to see how it all comes together. I'm surprised none of you had uh, Winnie the Pooh blood and honey two on your lists. I would have, but I've seen the first one. <laughs> Were you really surprised, Joe? <laughs> or or what about Mickey's Mousetrap? Oh man, I it just it looks terrible already <laughs> to me. <laughs> I don't know. I might end up seeing that one, but people have just been waiting decades for the rights. Well, it's like you're waiting so long for the rights to go up on that, and then it does, and then this is the first film that comes out with it. I know it's just. They, I think they're doing the same Winnie the Pooh thing, right? Like, we'll be the first one out of the gate, and it'll make money even if it's garbage. Which is too bad a little bit. Like, if somebody would, like, take the time to make a good one, like, may maybe that'd be interesting. But I don't know. Oh, well. I'm certain that if Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, any money that they did make on it was just people being curious. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yes. Well, they made some money for me because of that. It's funny because the second one has a lot bigger budget because of all of that. And uh, I've seen, I guess, all the images that they've released so far about the better prosthetics and stuff that they're using for the characters. And weirdly enough, I kind of don't feel like it looks better. I sort of, I it did look like just people in masks in the first film. I won't argue that. But I liked the look of that mask, and I feel like if they'd maybe stuck with something that looked a little closer to that, but managed to figure it out in prosthetics or in CG or something, I, I maybe, maybe would have been a little happier with it. Not that I care what happens with the franchise, to be honest, but <laughs> there's how I felt about it anyway. Well, yeah, anyways, like you said, Steve, a lot of interesting stuff happening this year. Hopefully it pans out in good ways. So, yeah, thanks for talking about it in the corner with us yay all right so we are covering a comic this week and we're covering lock and key volume one welcome to lovecraft from 2008 it was written by joe hill and it was drawn by gabriel rodriguez joe hill uh he's written novels like horns nosferatu the fireman and then uh, of course adaptations of his stuff 
there's been adaptations of Horns and Nosferatu, but also in The Tall Grass was a short story that he wrote with his father, Stephen King. And more recently, and probably the biggest claim to fame as far as adaptations would be The Black Phone that did so well. That was based on a short story of his. Uh, Comics-wise, he's worked on another series called The Cape and uh, Thumbprint, which were all his original ideas. He is currently working on a horror specific imprint through DC Comics black label called Hill House Comics. For that, he wrote Basketful of Heads and Plunge, and then there are other writers working on comics through that imprint as well. So there's comics like The Dollhouse Family, The Lolo Woods, and, and others. For Gabriel Rodriguez, uh, he started out wanting to be a comic artist, but didn't really feel like it was in the cards, so he ended up going to school for architecture, which really shows in his designs for Keyhouse. But other comics that he has worked on, he got his big break working on a comic book for CSI. And yes, like Crime Scene Investigation. And uh, he also worked on Clive Barker's The Great and Secret Show. He's done artwork for Superman, uh, The Rocketeer, Star Trek, Angel. He did a Little Nemo book. Uh, Lock and Key was published through IDW Publishing. And the series itself is six volumes that spanned from 2008 to 2013 and has about 37 issues in that run. There's also a handful of other stories set in that universe and other miniseries. Uh, It's kind of had a crazy adaptation. I guess we'll say uh, a hard time making an adaptation since Fox had gotten a hold of it originally and had made a pilot, which you can view on YouTube right now illegally, but it's there. And then Universal was going to make some movies, but that fell through. Uh, Hulu was also going to make a pilot or maybe did make a pilot. It's a little unclear if that happened. Uh, you had people like Scott Derrickson attached to it and, uh, Andy Massietti, who's, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but the director of it. And, uh, finally Netflix picked it up and there's a three season series that's available on there. That's is, that's currently canceled. So that's the three seasons is what we've got. For the back of the book description, Lock and Key tells of Key House, an unlikely New England mansion with fantastic doors that transform all who dare to walk through them, and home to a hate-filled and relentless creature that will not rest until it forces open the most terrible door of them all. So to give a little bit of a quote here, so Joe Hill had an interview with Double Toasted, the YouTube channel discussing the comic versus the TV show. And what he had to say was, Gabe and I told our version of the story on the page. It's pretty much straight horror. The comic book is much more aligned to the horror genre than maybe the show is. But then the comic always had this element of young adult fantasy. It was always a little bit like, you know, R-rated Harry Potter. I used to joke that the comic was horror Potter. I think the show has kept much of the same spirit, but I would say that if the comic was 60% horror and 40%, you know, young adult fantasy, the TV show was the inverted of that, end quote. And then since uh, we went to the website Goodreads, since we're looking at a comic book, and between 5,293 respondents on Goodreads, 55% called it horror, 24% called it fantasy, uh, for... Tags that were under 5%, you had things like mystery, paranormal, supernatural, thriller, ghosts, and gothic. And under 1% or lower, you had designations such as urban fantasy, magic, dark, and suspense. 
I thought it was worth checking out too how the TV show was labeled. And four sites called that drama, three called it fantasy, two called it horror. Uh, there weren't really any noticeable search trends for it on Google and Wikipedia as far as bumps in October. So nothing really there that was conclusive. And then I will say for the TV series, one of the three seasons was released in October. So clearly there was some thought process, at least on Netflix, Netflix's part, that maybe that would be a good time to release it. So maybe thinking was horror adjacent. For the comic series itself, only one single issue of the entire original run was released in October. And that was issue two of volume four. And it wasn't even the first issue, as I said, of that. So at least in terms of release schedule, they didn't think it was worth doing in October. So uh, all of that being said, Lock and Key, volume one of the comic series, is it horror? I'm willing to say that this is horror. This is kind of along the lines of, I don't know, gothic horror specifically. Like this, this could have like maybe almost Crimson Peak vibes. Definitely horror for me. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, definitely horror for me. I'm going to argue that just based off volume one, this is not horror. And for me, I'm going to go ahead and say yes, that I do think that it is horror. And uh, I will say from here on, there will be spoilers for the first volume. Um, there's a lot of surprises, twists, and things that change throughout the remaining volumes, so we will try and keep the spoilers to just the first volume and really just look at the first volume in terms of whether or not it's horror. Um, so we'll go from there. The first thing I wanted to see is how familiar was everyone with Lock and Key before doing this episode? I knew nothing about it um, except that you, Steve, liked it and mentioned it to me once, but I never got around to it. And then I think the Netflix series came out and I think I watched the first episode and didn't get to finish it. So that was the extent of my knowledge of it. Um, that being said, spoiler alert, I really enjoyed this. Like I would like to read the rest of it. Uh, I've read through this through the comic a couple times. I really enjoy it as well. It's one of maybe one of my favorite comics uh as far as especially as far as like kind of a limited run thing goes uh I, yeah i haven't really watched the show much i watched the first season of it uh but was honestly pretty disappointed with the tv series so i kind of dropped it after that uh but yeah that's been my exposure i heard that too joe that the the series was not that great and i'm kind of glad that i didn't watch that first i'm glad that i read it yeah uh, yeah, uh, read the comic for sure, <laughs> but you can, in my opinion, kind of forget that they tried to make a show out of it. <laughs> the book is always better. Uh, for me, I read, I want to say, three to four volumes before, um, but I had not touched it in a long time. I started watching the TV series for, like, I couldn't get through more than the first episode, and that's where I'm at on lock and key. So this is one where... It's funny because I wanted 
Matt, I wanted you to read this so bad that I unthinkingly bought the first volume of it for you twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I really, I really like this series a lot. It was one that was recommended to me by the local comic shop owner here in town at the time because I was kind of looking for stuff and he was really excited about it. So he was really pushing it. And I actually bought a volume right before flying back to Pennsylvania and read it on the plane and kind of couldn't put it down. I think I bought the second volume while I was in Pennsylvania to make sure that I had it for the way back. Um, so this is a favorite series of mine. The The ending of it always makes me cry. I <laughs> This it's, it's so good. I really can't uh, oversell how good it is. And as same as Joe, I, can't really overstate how disappointed I was with the adaptation that we got in Netflix. I anyway, this isn't about that. So we'll maybe leave some of that on the table, but yeah, I really wanted a whole lot of something else from what the adaptation was going to be. And looking at some of the people that were attached to the various adaptations never got made as pretty disappointed that this is what we ended up with. And some of those other people didn't really get a good shot at it. Do better, Netflix. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at least right out of the gate, talking about tone, one of the major themes of Lock and Key, particularly in this first volume, is grief and loss of loved ones. Rendell's death at the very beginning is felt across the whole volume as we see each character and how they're dealing with it. So I wanted to see, starting off at the top, how did this theme of grief and loss affect your classification? I think it definitely cemented the tone right off the bat. Like I was immediately on edge and like there were stakes right away. So yeah, I think that it definitely impacted my decision. I think the fact that it was a murder um, and just the type of murder definitely kind of set the tone. But I think the this volume did a great job at just examining how people deal with grief in their own ways and not let alone like how the, the death occurred, but just that, that the death occurred. Um, and you know, that's, you know, I've, I lost people in my life and I've, uh, you know, been through some of those things, had those feelings. Um, so, you know, it, it hits home on a lot of levels for that type of thing. Uh, but yeah, again, as far as classification goes, I don't think the grief itself necessarily put it that way, but just kind of maybe the underlying tone that the grief is because of a murder um, maybe did help it a little bit. I don't think that the grief and the feeling of loss uh, lends it specifically towards horror. It can, can help set the scene uh, of horror. Um, I think more than anything, it just sets the tone of the books as being kind of something that's going to deal with heavy situations and and something that has a lot of uh, a lot of people that are dealing with with strong emotion, and that's that's really all. Yeah, I, I would agree with everyone said. I don't think it automatically puts it in the horror category. I think in some ways, and there's a quote that I have from Joe Hill that we'll share later, but in some ways, having the characters specifically 
and try in depth to deal with their grief and the loss of someone is a little bit antithetical to what you often see in, say, horror films, where people die quickly and our characters have to kind of move on from it quickly or simply don't care, depending on the quality of the horror film. So to see a volume where a death occurs and we spend the entire volume dealing with how everyone feels about that is not something that you usually get in horror movies. So to see it dealt with in something that's a little more long form like this is definitely interesting and it gives it a bit of a dark tone, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that in and of itself is horror. Uh, the other thing I wanted to see, though, dealing with that same idea is, while it is a bit of a dark subject matter to start things off with, do you feel like the story ever got too heavy? No, I think if anything, the heavy subject matter just lent to the overall feel of the story. Like it just it it kept you in that state of, I don't know, state of suspense, I guess. Yeah, I think it did a really good job of that. And like sort of, you know, in the background, having that heaviness and that suspense, maybe not suspense, but like the heaviness of grief. And but then you still have to, you know, live your life and they're trying to move on. And I think some of the moments that work or that show that really well are like uh, the moments where you get like. Tyler like barely holding it together but then having Bodhi coming up and wanting to play with him and just like his internal monologue about like I gotta be strong for this kid basically and um, I think that was that's a good as far as like the emotion of the volume I think that's a good kind of example of that just where it's it is really heavy but they are you know keeping the like everyday life stuff moving as well and it is kind of nice to see how they're pulling together to moments like that. I think it's a good moment to point out just in how, you know, someone's sitting there having these dark thoughts and they're saying, but, you know, there's people that care about me and depend on me or, you know, what would these other people do? And so I, I feel like there's a lot of good stuff like that in the comic of them pulling together. Not always, but them trying to pull together. I also think it's interesting because I, I feel that Stephen King also does this, so maybe Joe Hill took some inspiration there, but uh, when you're taking heavy subject matter and you're putting it from the perspective of a small child, I feel that it sort of breaks up the tone to an extent when you add that childlike curiosity, especially in Bode. I think that it um, brings a lighter tone to those moments like horror is kind of always peaks and valleys and i think any story that has suspense is peaks and valleys and i think bode does a good job his sections particularly do a good job of bringing it into a valley that feels lighter there's definitely some thoughts that i have that i want to get into with that a little bit later too but yeah i think that his reaction to it is is good like you say just seeing it from a childlike perspective i think that's something that yeah, I agree. I think Joe Hill does a good job of keeping pace with what it was like to be a kid. Going a little bit of another direction, so this is the first of six volumes, so there's a lot left unexplained still, and a lot of the horror plays with the unknown, and I wanted to see, did being left in the dark 
work in the story's favor toward being horror. The fact that there's not a lot explained in this first volume, to me, takes away from some of the horror. And the way that I explain that is I think that in subsequent volumes, you get more of an explanation of what it is that you're dealing with with Key House and you visit some of some I think personally more dark supernatural places than what you just get in the first volume so I I think that for me that's why I said not horror because I think because it's just the first volume we're talking about I feel like it lands a little bit more into dark fantasy realm I thought the unexplained lent towards the horror element for me. I was constantly guessing about things and, you know, having to cheat and look things up on Google so that I would understand it. Like I, it worked for me. I guess for me, I maybe land somewhere in the middle a little bit. Like some of the, some of the mystery was felt more fun and fantasy type, especially with the keys. Um, so that stuff didn't really work for me on a horror level. I mean, I loved it all, but it wasn't that part wasn't horror to me. But the mystery of the lady in the well, um, I guess for me was uh, it that was felt more more on the horror level, especially when you get towards the end with her like creeping out of the well towards Bodie, and uh, you just get a very uh, like <laughs> very creepy vibe of that. Um, so her mystery, I guess feels like horror, uh, her slash his. Yeah. Cause she was extremely sinister. Like there, you knew from the get go that she was not there just to talk to the cute little kid. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things too, is because this volume I could see a world in which if you saw this, if this entire story was told, say, from from anybody's perspective, except for Bodie's, I guess I think of him as Bodie, not Bodo. I'm not sure which is necessarily correct, yeah. but but in I any case, Bodie. I think so. But um, but yeah, if you were if you say you saw the entire story from just uh, Tyler's perspective, for instance. So you never see the lady in the well, you never see what the ghost key does. Then it's just a human drama about a disturbed kid that he went to high school with that is delusional, that does this home invasion and then tracks them down later. And you could see it as very unsupernatural. And I don't think that, and we've been over this in plenty of episodes before that. I don't think there has to be a supernatural element for something to be horror but I think that if you did take all of the supernatural element out of this specific story, I could have a lot easier time seeing it as maybe just a thriller. So I guess all of that to say is I think maybe some of the mystery and hinting at some of those things, the lady in the well and whatever her abilities are, whatever her true nature, their true nature is, I think maybe does lend well towards the idea of this feeling like horror for me. So another thing about this is, so the comics medium, it uses different tools than films to tell stories. And subsequently, horror as a genre has to work a little different in comics. Just one example of that, 
is a lot of horror films rely on jump scares and quick cuts to show audiences things without really showing them. In a comic, your audience is free to dwell on any image and set their own pace. So there's a good example of how it's different, or at least one of the ways in which it's different. With that in mind, do you think that it can be harder for comics to be horror? No, I don't think so. I think comics are very raw um, and it's certainly not a moving image, but you like I can hear and see and smell and taste things reading a comic the same way that I would perceive them watching a film. So for me, it's it's the same thing, but different. I don't think there's necessarily advantages or disadvantages that outweigh each other between the two. I think um, movies get it a little easy. Uh, and they, I feel like, and this isn't true of all horror, but like horror has horror in movies and, uh, on the screen, I feel like has a little bit, they can use shortcuts a little bit better and they can, uh, you, and sometimes they feel a little cheap to me. Uh, so I guess it, I would say that like long form horror is more difficult. We've talked about that a few times with like series we've talked about. Um, and things like that. And, and, um, and some comics, I think, cause we talked about it with, uh, like we talked about it in Sandman where it can be a little hard, harder for that to, to have the same notes. Uh, but I still think that comics, especially like you get a lot of visuals with comics and I think it's, you can definitely still have horror it, and maybe even better horror uh, because you can do it in a more long, like um, paced uh, form if you do it right. And this is, I think, a really good example of it being done right. Something I was going to say is I feel like um, movies and TV shows that are horror rely a little bit too hard nowadays on like the whole jump scare thing. So if anything, I think um, books and comic books outside of like uh like a movie or tv media i feel like books and comic books have to find ways to frighten you with their content and the sort of meaning behind everything that's going on uh without not without necessarily relying so much on visual scares like that although obviously a comic book has that visual aspect of it but i think that it still needs to tell stories the same way that a book does and let you be scared based on sort of the implication of what's happening and what's happening in between the lines so for example the idea of bode turning himself into a ghost um or i don't know just things like that it's more scary to think about the implications or the consequences of what's happening in that situation uh, than relying on like a jump scare, for example, in a movie. Yeah, I think that definitely a comic can be horror. I think a comic can be scary. I think that it requires a different mentality. I think it would be hard for someone that was a screenwriter maybe specifically to transition from that to trying to write horror for comics just because of those tropes being somewhat different. 
but I think it would also be easier, say, for a novelist to transition to doing horror in comics because I think maybe you're using at least some of the same tool sets in that case. Um, I, I guess I wanted to see, too, did you feel like Lock and Key was ever scary? Do you think it was trying to be? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was a significant amount of gore in this first issue. I think for sure it was trying to be scary, and I think it was scary in a lot of in a lot of moments. Um, yeah, I I feel like the parts of the story that are trying to be the most scary are with I don't even remember what the kid's name is. The kid that is killing everybody that killed their father, Sam um, Lesser. So yeah, Sam Lesser. And his scenes and kind of the just callous nature of the way that he's killing people on the way to Key House. And there is some suspense and a little bit of fear with the creature in the well. But I just don't feel like it that comes to like a really frightening, scary kind of climax yet in this. It doesn't. I'm not as scared of that as I am of, like, Sam Lesser harming the characters. Um, and so that's kind of why, for me, I didn't feel like it was horror as much. I just felt like... Because it's just a guy with a gun at the end of the day. So, that, I don't know, that's kind of what I where I landed with it because of that. I definitely feel like in light of the entire series, this, I know that one of the things Joe Hill said in interviews is the idea of doing lock and key in the three act structure. So every two volumes, you know, changes acts. So this would be the first part of act one, but I feel like this first volume specifically kind of feels like a bit of a prologue to the whole thing, kind of setting you up, getting your family to key house, introducing them along with you at the same time to the idea of the keys and introducing you at the same time to the central antagonist of the series. Um, so I guess that is a bit of a spoiler to say that you do meet the central antagonist here and they continue on whatever their nature is, whatever their history is. I think that I do think, yeah, that lock and key, this first volume is trying to be scary. I think that there's good creepy mood about the whole thing. Again, for me, a lot of that being from the mystery of it and just getting hints of things that are there and having your imagination run wild a bit with what what all those things could mean. Um, and then in terms of the artwork, since we're dealing with a comic, how did you feel that the artwork played into the overall tone of the comic? Uh, did the art style work for the horror genre? Yes, absolutely. Color palette, like character structure, facial structure, all of it was very horror. It painted a really good picture. Like I did actually wind up going back after I read it and like flipping through really good panels that I liked. I I really like the artwork on this. Yeah, I don't know that I have much exactly to add on that, just to say that I, I also really liked it. I, this is a very pretty comic to me. I really, I really appreciate comics that take the time to have a good visual style. And this one definitely does. Yeah. I, I think this is, is great. And I especially like the designs of the creature in the well, and then also 
the scenes where Bode is a ghost, I think, are really interestingly drawn. Uh, and, and the gore in this is very well done also. I like the artwork a lot in this, and there's a quote that I have in a second that kind of goes along with that from Gabriel, from Gabriel Rodriguez talking about this. But um, one of the other things that I like about it, too, is the panel layout, I think, is really good. I know that's a little bit yeah. different between them, but yeah, I I think in my own attempts at writing comics, I use this as a lot of inspiration in trying to figure out good layouts because I think I just really love the way that they work in here. Um, but I do have a quote from Gabriel Rodriguez in an interview with CBR on the art style that he was using for the, for this. And so what he had to say was, when I started working on this, I knew that if this project would extend over the years, there is an inevitable change or evolution in your own style. I wanted to make that evolution a part of the content of the story. When I read the first scripts by Joe, I realized the emotional depth of the story. I also realized that this was going to be a story about a bunch of kids who were going to be forced through a maturity process. In a very aware way, I started drawing the characters in an almost caricaturist way with almost exaggerated features and very exaggerated eyes because I wanted to give myself a place to play with the emotional tools of the story. Also, as the series progressed, I wanted to make them less and less caricaturistic and more and more realistic. I think it's going to be very noticeable when you compare Omega to Welcome to Lovecraft. I wanted to have a visual development of the characters that were able to reflect that change from childhood to adulthood in terms of their internal development. That was a risky chance I took at the beginning of the story, not knowing if I would be able to make it work, but I'm very glad I tried that, and I'm very proud that it was sort of succeeded. Well, the final word on that will be the readers, of course, but it was part of the challenge of the story itself, end quote. And I feel like you can see that, and of course, we haven't all read through the entire series, and it's not a spoiler to say that I think that comparison works. I feel like you do see that the style gets more realistic as time goes on. So it's interesting comparing, like you said, the first and last volumes, but, uh, so, but I think, yeah, I, I like the style of it and I like how intentional it was. So diving into kind of the tension of the story, uh, Hill and Rodriguez, they spent a lot of time layering their dialogue throughout so that it's not just the dialogue or the art giving you information an example of this is Sam's bus ride to Lovecraft. So Sam's taking his seat and there are a handful of other people sitting around him. On the panel, there's a word balloon for the upcoming scene that says, you see where we're going with this, right? So you get the sort of interplay between artwork and text that gives you a little more information and sometimes a sense of foreboding. So I was kind of curious, is that something that stood out to you as you're reading the comic, seeing that sort of interplay of information between panel and artwork? Did it help build tension for you if you did notice it? I actually didn't notice it. Now I'm going to have to go back and read it from that like standpoint. <laughs> I definitely noticed it. And that might've just been because I've read it a couple times at this point. Um, but yeah, I did feel like that, that worked really well to kind of um, like interweave everything that's going on and um, build the tension in multiple ways with like, you know, you build the tension with a single line, but for in two different places, 
which I think is really interesting and really well done. Um, uh, so yes, I guess is the short answer. <laughs> it reminded me again of Stephen King because a lot of and a lot of Stephen King's writing, he'll be like, and that was the last time he would see her alive, kind of a thing to like start off a paragraph. And I think that Joe Hill does that a few times throughout this book, where it's uh, that kind of omniscient narrator point of view that um, foreshadows what's coming. I like it. I think it reminds me too, because I know Joe Hill's brought up that one of its inspirations in writing comics is Alan Moore. And when you look at Alan Moore's Watchmen, there's a lot of sort of metatextual information between the interplay of dialogue and visuals as well. Just an example of that in the first issue of Watchmen, you have the dialogue of the investigators checking out the crime scene where the comedian has been killed. And then sometimes you have their dialogue layered over flashbacks to what had happened. And so in one scene, for instance, they're, they're in the elevator and they hit the floor to go to, you know, from the floor that the murder occurred on down to the bottom floor. And uh, they're just hitting the button and they're saying, well, ground floor coming up. But then that line of dialogue is over the image of the comedian as he's falling from the window he's been tossed out of falling towards the ground. So I can almost see like the gears turning of Joe Hill looking at comics like that and saying like, why aren't, why don't we try and do that kind of layered thing here too? And it's not as intense as it is in Watchmen. And I'm not saying it even has to be, but I think that he does that to good effect, combining those sort of literary tension building things like you're saying with Stephen King throwing in a line of dialogue, like that's the last time they ever saw each other, but doing it in a, in a comic kind of way. So I don't know. I just think it's really well constructed in that sense. Um, and then I guess, so did you feel, you said, we've talked about a little bit before and people have said, you felt a lot of tension throughout the series, even if it's not just from that kind of, uh, stylistic choice, but just overall the comic has good horror tension to you. I think so. It has like multiple types of tension. And one of them I, I feel is horror, but, um, I I don't know, maybe I'm on Matt's, I, I feel Matt's level on this a little bit, I think, just because it's it's only part of the tension. It's only part of the tension for me. Uh, there's there's just so much else going on. And like the sa- stuff with Sam Lesser, I do, I can see that that's a little bit more of like kind of drama and crime type tension. Um, but uh, I, yeah. I wouldn't say that the horror tension is the top one. Yeah, that, that's kind of where I agree is I feel like we're getting a little bit of like a tease of the horror that could happen with this series. But I don't think that this particular volume is really diving into predominantly horror tension and tone for me yet. Well, I think it's setting the backstory for these characters because how how many more volumes are there of this? Five. Did you say more. two, three? 
five more holy shit so we're so if this was a movie we're like this first volume is like 15 minutes in so we're getting all the backstory we're fleshing out our characters even our villain like you feel bad for sam lesser when you see what he went through even though he's this awful human being now i think i think maybe most of this is just backstory and i think a lot of horror movies do that too a lot of horror fiction does that as well would you say overall that you liked the Locke family and do you have a favorite? Oh, little man for sure. He's awesome. Oh yeah. I, I do like the Locke family, all of them quite a bit. Um, and it's hard to, hard to pick a favorite. I really like Kinsey and I really like Bodie. I uh, ended up naming a dog Bodie. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I like them all. Did you name your dog after this Bodie? Yes, I did. Oh my god, you're such a nerd. That's adorable. I love that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's okay. My newest addition, my newest cat, um, sorry, uh, shift without a clutch. Um, his name is Oscar, but I've decided that it's short for Oscar Mandius because Ozymandias <laughs> from Watchmen. So there you go. I see you. I like uh, virtual fist bump. <laughs> nice. Do you ever look upon his works in despair? In despair, yes. Nice. <laughs> that's that's Percy Bysshe Shelley, isn't it? Uh, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna have to fact check myself. It's been a while since I took like a classic lit course. Anyway, sorry, off track. Proceed. I was just gonna say I really like Bode, um, but I also really like where Kinsey's story ends up going, and I think that she is really really interesting to me. I think she she's kind of my favorite character of volume two, which, you know, maybe someday we'll go into that and I won't spoil anything about what she does or what she's like in that. But uh, yeah, I think Bodie'd be my favorite character in this one. But I also do really like Tyler, despite how kind of like, I don't know, annoying, trying to be cool teenager he is. But I can appreciate that character having been a teenage male who desperately wanted to seem cool and tough. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're just all such good characters. And like you were saying, like, I really like Kinsey's arc, especially when she sort of like makes that choice to just be who she is. Uh, I love that part of the, especially this first volume about her. And then I've got another quote here from Joe Hill just talking about characterization in general, but it was an interview he did also with CBR about Locke and Key Omega, which was the final volume of this. And what he had to say was, even though the comic goes to some pretty shocking places and does some pretty terrible things to its lead characters, it's been very respectful to each character's identity. There is the feeling that none of these people are stereotypes to be knocked down, but people with full emotional lives and an interesting inner landscape. Even when punishment is inflicted on them, you still care about them. You root for them. I think that when horror fails, it fails because all of the characters are a one-dimensional cardboard cutout, like the slasher films of the 1980s. You've got the slot, the slut, the jock, the geek, and they just become ten pins to be knocked down by the bowling ball of Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. Actually, the most fully fleshed out character in those movies turns out to be the serial killer, and you wind up laughing as he cuts down, cuts people down. 
I love a lot of those movies, but on a deep level, I find them morally abhorrent. I don't want to root for the serial killer. I want to root for the heroes. In some ways, Lock and Key has always been a teen slasher film on the grand scale. I wanted people to get to know those characters before they start being cut down. Then it's no fun when someone does, when someone dies, end quote. So mostly we cover movies and there's only so much time you get to spend getting to know your characters in a film. So I think we kind of covered this a little bit, but just to kind of deal with it head on, did the extra breathing room help flesh the locks out for you? Did that help build tension in general? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the more uh, you get to know your characters and why they, you know, do the things that they do and what their place is in this little universe that the author's creating, I I think that does nothing but good things for a story. Yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, I, I I just agree on all of that. the The time you spend with them is so well worth it. And um, especially with the, the three lock kids, uh, you really care. You end up caring about all of them, or I did. Um, so it's you get, you get so much more out of that. I, I think it's a much better way to look at it. And I love that quote from Joe Hill about talking about how in movies, like it gets so boiled down and you end up rooting for the villain, which you, when you stop and think about it, is sort of terrible. Uh, so I, uh, I don't know why, like, I haven't put that much thought into it, but like, it was interesting to like see his words on that and then be like, that's exactly how I feel about it. I just hadn't realized that's how I thought about it exactly. Um, so yeah, anyways. Yeah. I much prefer reading over watching a TV show or movie just for that because you get to spend a lot more time with each of the characters. I mean, there's no way that you could possibly get the same amount of characterization for each person if you if this was a TV show, unless it was like a really long TV show. Like, it almost wouldn't fit... It doesn't fit TV shows to have a ton of characterization sometimes like this does. Um, because, kind of like you were saying, it's almost like this is a prequel to the entire series. So a TV show would take this whole volume and put it into 45 minutes, and I just don't think you would get the same feeling. And obviously, the TV adaptations that were tried of this didn't get that same feeling. So, Which is, interestingly enough, exactly what the Fox pilot tried to do. The Fox pilot is about an hour, and it covers the whole first volume. And you can kind of feel that it's it's covering the beats, but maybe is a little on the empty side in terms of character work. So that was one of the things that, you know, I, I like the, how faithful that version of it was, but I can understand to a degree why it got passed on. Still worth checking out for any lock and key fans. Like I said, it's on YouTube. Just search lock and key Fox pilot or unaired pilot. And I'm sure you'll find it easy enough. Used to be, I searched for years to see that thing. And now you pretty much just quick Google search and you got it. Uh, but then looking at just kind of so, again, dealing with the idea of horror pushing some various social boundaries, one of the things that kind of noticed, at least throughout this one, is the idea of putting children in danger, because the main focus of the comic is the locked children, and we've got Bodie, who's about six, and Kinsey and Tyler, who are both in their teens, but a couple years apart. So does the fact that it's 
primarily kids who were in danger throughout the series make it feel more horrific? It doesn't for me because it's in the comic format. So maybe I'm contradicting myself with what I said about there being no difference between comics and movies. Um, I think that if I think that I was if I was watching a an actual like child actor, yes, I, that would automatically trigger something. But I think because it's illustration, it's a little different. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. It's it. I don't know because it's sort of like a. It's kind of got a, like a young adult like mystery aesthetic to it, yeah. but then it just digs a little deeper on that, I guess. So yeah, I get right. what you're saying. Like it, it doesn't necessarily just because it's about the lock kids doesn't isn't I don't know making it worse somehow. Right, because there's portions of Harry Potter that are pretty freaking dark, you know, and like those are kids in danger for like what five six books, but I would not classify that as horror. Yeah, yeah. I think weirdly enough for me too, I didn't necessarily, I don't remember reading this the first time and actually feeling like they were in danger of dying. And it's not to say that that's not a thing that could potentially happen later in this series, but I guess I didn't really expect that from this first first volume. Yeah, I think it kind of raises the stakes some, but um, I don't think that it makes it necessarily more or less horror. I wanted to see too, because of course we've got that bus scene that I had referenced earlier with Sam Lesser. Um, did you guys happen to notice that there was a baby on there and it's implied that he would have killed the baby too? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely noticed that. Yeah, that was that was a little dark and creepy as well. That was like the sociopathic cherry on top of the shit Sunday that was that whole situation. Yeah. And then delving into another thing of kind of, I guess we'll see how everybody felt about it. And we don't have to dig in too deep with it because I know it could be potentially triggering for some of our audience. But the story, I feel like, makes it pretty clear that Nina is sexually assaulted during the home invasion at the beginning of the story. And I guess I wanted to see, how did you feel about how that was handled? Um, we'll, we'll start, I guess, from there. I mean, I think that sexual assault it, in terms of horror is sometimes a like lazy writing and a cheap way out. But I agree with you. Number one, I do think that she was assaulted during the home invasion. Um, and I think that artistically it was handled well because, again, like I don't need to see a nine minute extended scene of someone acting that out. Um, and I think that it was made clear in, in the comic and it lent to the horror vibe terrible things but um i i think it was all right yeah yeah i think it was handled about as well as it could be um i don't know it's i don't know exactly how to phrase my thoughts on it i guess but um you know it's a terrible thing that happened i don't know that it necessarily makes it horror for me uh, it just makes it, it makes, like, that's part of the part that's maybe more on the, like, crime and drama type stuff level for me. Not horror, it's horrific and it's terrible, but not, it, it feels more like criminals doing terrible things, not horror. 
I think the horrific nature of the whole attack and how you revisit that and go into the trauma that's happening individually in all of their heads through the scene, I think it would have been too much at once if you also went into the trauma of of the mom's sexual assault at that time also. And so almost leaving it for up to your kind of imagination interpretation of that also being a huge part of the trauma um, is handled well enough I guess um, the story is more about the trauma that the kids are going through I feel than their mother and so it's just like an extra little bit of something that shows you how awful these people were that did this crime to the family but I, I think it was good that it wasn't necessarily the focus with the story that they were trying to tell. Yeah, I definitely think that there are plenty of stories that deal with it in a flippant way, sexual assault. And I was glad that this one I felt found a good balance of making it clear what happened, but without having to force you as an audience member to dwell on it. I also think that the series as a whole does a good job of having Nina deal with the various traumas that she's dealing with, not just of losing Rendell, but also of that assault and seeing how it's affected her and her making different decisions than she might have made otherwise. I also think it's interesting to see that both Netflix and Fox's version chose to omit that part of it. And I don't think you lose anything by omitting it. And I'm not, that's, I'm not convinced that it's necessarily necessary as something that had to have happened in this story. I don't think it adds to or takes away from the horror feel necessarily for me, but that's me speaking as a man. So I know that that's not how everyone's going to see it. Um, so I guess that's where I would put it in terms of how it affected classification. But again, I think that it was handled about as well as you could handle something like that. And then going into the violence aspect of things in the comic. So more often than not, when there is violence in the comics, in the comic, we see it as it happens, or we at least see the aftermath. And there is quite a bit of blood, even in the first chapter. So I want to see, would you describe this as a very gory series? Uh, does it rise to the shock level of horror gore for you? I think that some of the panels depicting the gore are in your face enough and brutal enough for me to say, yeah. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of it's not like bodies being ripped open or anything like dramatic like that, but it's very, it makes you want to feel something from what it's showing. And you do. And I did, I did at least. And, you know, you do feel, or I did feel kind of that repulsion about what's happening. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's horror level gore. I mean, for me, it, it, it was the, the ax to the back of the head panel. Like that was, that was pretty gross. Yeah. Couldn't happen to a better person. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really uh hold anything back with the with the violence in this, I feel. It's and I think a lot of comic books can of that 
time of this time currently uh they do go like ultra violent with that because maybe it's a way of offsetting the fact that you can't do like jump scares maybe that having that ultra amount of gore in comics is what is what they use as sort of a tool for horror um i personally don't feel that it's a horror kind of idea solely a horror idea to have gore like that um but this is a very gory comic and i feel it's on the level on the same level of gore as some horror movies for sure yeah i think of almost i would compare this in my head as far as violence goes to the invincible comic series in a way, not not compared to say that I think they're on the same level, but to contrast, I guess, the violence in both of those. Because I wouldn't think of Invincible as a comic series as horror at all. But there is, especially as the series goes on, it gets pretty violent. And you get Ryan Otley's very detailed artwork. So it's not just someone gets punched really hard. It's someone gets punched through. And you see in very minute detail all of their internal organs and viscera being spread across the page and yeah you could have done something like that in here but while it's violent and it's bloody and i do feel like there is a horror quality to the gore in this it still manages to accomplish that while showing some degree of restraint so it's it's shocking in its violence and in its blood but it's not going for gross out. It wants you to feel something, but it's not trying to make you puke, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Okay, good. Thank you for validating me. Uh, and I and we had brought this up a little bit earlier, but to deal with it a little bit more in depth. Um, so obviously we deal with a lot of death in this comic. And we, of course, are watching all the characters dealing with the death of Rendell. But specifically through finding the ghost key, we watch as Bodhi comes to understand what death means and come to terms with his dad's passing. The way that this first volume deals with death is more thoughtful than the typical than you typically see in horror, at least I feel like it is. And it's not uncommon for horror to deal with death quickly and irreverent irreverently. So I what did you feel like this first volume had to to say about death and do you feel like that message is in line with the horror genre i mean i think that it it kind of presented death as very very bleak until you find out that there's a ghost key and that changes everything <laughs> so i'm not really sure yeah um it's really interesting to watch bodhi deal with that and um watch how he you know just sort of has that realization that like you know he goes through and is a ghost and then like sees his body there and is just like oh well that's like a that's like a sock without a shoe without a foot in it and that's that's what death is and uh, I, I don't know I think that's really interesting and maybe not really that in line with horror in my opinion um, I guess I think that's a little more um, like the undertones of that is a little more hopeful um, and a little more, um, a little more interesting, I guess. Well, not, maybe that's not the right word for it, um, but it's interesting um, to see that um, different thought process than you normally might see in 
a lot of horror movies, at least that I've seen. I think that demystifying and taking away some of the the unknown of death, as this does, um, makes it less horror. And I think also the fact that you're kind of dealing with the individual trauma of of that specific death of their father and how each of the kids deals with it and learns to live with it is uh, more of a hopeful message than a horror message. Yeah, I would agree with that too. And I think it's very intentional, right? That it's this key and it's found by Bodhi specifically. Cause I think the the series could have got pretty heavy if Bodhi was dealing the most with like if he was spending the entire volume crying about the loss of his dad, I think it would have made it a lot harder and a lot darker to deal with this volume. But to have him basically immediately upon getting to Key House find the idea of that there's life after death and that maybe what you're experiencing after death isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I feel like that would be very comforting, like to find that out immediately after the passing of a loved one and to have Bodhi find that and to see kind of his reaction to all of it, I think is, is really helpful and it's interesting and hopeful. And I know we talked about this a little bit in the secret of Nim. I think that horror can be hopeful. I think that it can be hard to have it mesh really well. So I think that this, like you've already said, I think Joe, you're saying too, is the fantasy aspect of it and kind of tying in with that. Um, but yeah, I think that this, maybe that kind of thing, having him deal with death in that way doesn't necessarily align with what you usually think of as horror, but I think it works here. Not necessarily against it, but it doesn't keep it from feeling too much like horror, but it, yeah, out of line, man, I'm rambling, but that's fine. There it is. Enjoy. I've read like a bunch of, uh, things about like people experiencing like near death experiences and things like that. And it like it had a lot of similar tones to that. And like, there's, I think, you know, I think it's Bodhi who says in here, like, you know, it's not so bad being dead basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, you don't have to worry about some other things, but like a lot of, uh, accounts from people who've had near death experiences are they come back and like, they, from that point on have like zero fear of death. Uh, which is really interesting. Um, and I, I feel like that's very much in line with kind of the, the tone or the idea that they, that Joe Hill was going with for Bodhi for this. And then I wanted to kind of look at the villains of the series as well. So we basically have two real villains in this first volume of Lock and Key, and that'd be Sam Lesser and the Lady in the Well. And so, Brianna, you'd mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but to kind of deal with this head on, too. Um, so you get at least some backstory on Sam. And despite the horrible things he does, did you end up feeling sympathy for him? Did he feel tragic? And uh, do you think you can have a sympathetic villain and maintain a horror tone? Absolutely. And he is kind of tragic. Like he's kind of um, Shakespearean, you know, the poor kid never had a chance in hell. No wonder he got all fucked up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the lady in the well, on the other hand, that bitch is shady. So uh, for Sam, for Sam, for me, like, I think he, 
I don't know. I guess he feels tragic. Um, but like, I, f- I didn't feel any sympathy for him. Uh, at least not at the point that we're like kind of current day in this. I felt sympathy for him. Uh, when you look back at his earlier life and see how his, you know, parents treated him, what his home life was like, all these things, uh, all of these things that happened to him in school and all that, like, that's all very tragic and very, you know, you can feel sympathy for him for that. Uh, but like at some point he made a choice and like, I just, I don't feel any sympathy for that. Like plenty of people have had fucked up lives early on and they go on to be fine and they make, they make a choice to not let that define them. And I, I don't feel like you, I I don't, I can't look at somebody who chooses to be a mass murderer and feel any sympathy for them. Like, I don't don't know. It's just, I, I don't, that doesn't work for me, I guess. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I don't feel like he's a sympathetic villain. I see what you're saying, but for me, what turns it is there's a supernatural element at play here. And I got vibes from him in the same way that I did from like the trash can man, you know, from the stand or, um, oh my gosh, it just went out of my head. But like, I think that's why I sympathize because you feel like there's something else controlling and motivating and manipulating him. Like, it's almost like he was an easy mark for the greater evil that's pulling the strings, you know? Yeah, that's very true. I think at you know he was, um, he was somebody that the lady in the well could latch onto and could actually manipulate, and that that is yeah. tragic. Um, like Renfield, and, that was the other example. Like he's being controlled. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, to to a degree, like yeah, like some of those, like they don't necessarily have control over that. Um, in themselves, I guess um, some of the things and some of the choices that Sam ends up making, like he talks like he doesn't have a choice in all this. And it's like, I'm good at figuring out what happens next. And he's not, you know, saying things like I, I chose this. Like he, he's just, he, at some point he, he decided that like he didn't have control over what was happening and he was just good at figuring out what he was supposed to do next. And, um, but I don't know. He let go of those choices for himself. Uh, and it wasn't like the lady in the well was making him kill all those people. Like he, he didn't have to be on the bus, for example. Um, I, you know, there, he didn't have to, he didn't have to make those choices. He, he let go of his agency, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, but he let go of it to himself. I feel like, cause like the lady in the well was using him for sure, but he, he subconsciously, I guess, maybe made those choices to, to act that way, I guess. So I thought it was interesting how you made the comparison with the trash can man from the stand. I was thinking of him more in terms of like Lloyd from the stand as being somebody who was kind of given purpose by Randall Flagg, whereas Sam Wesser was looking for purpose given by the lady in the well, kind of, or found purpose mm-hmm. in her. That's a good point. Them. And it was like, and it also reminds me of like 
Wormtail from Harry Potter, who's, uh, Peter Pettigrew, is somebody who is like lost or had a difficult life or difficult situations and we're just looking for the big bully on the playground to hide under their skirts kind of a thing uh, because of promises of whatever you would get from doing that. Um, and then I think Sam kind of got his comeuppance there for trusting in that kind of person. So I, I don't really think he's tragic. I don't think I think he kind of gets rid of any sort of redeemable qualities or me feeling bad for him. I I don't know. I go back and forth on this. I think like Brianna said initially, I feel like from how his backstory is presented, what we know of it, it really feels like he didn't have much of a chance to succeed. You have that brief conversation that he has with Rendell in the guidance counselor's office that makes it seem as though beyond his experience that maybe there is maybe the thing that because Rendell says something along the lines of uh, I have some real concerns about your emotional responses or something like that. Which makes me almost think that maybe the thing that Rendell was getting at or wanted to see Sam tested for is maybe whether or not he was sociopathic. And I don't know a lot about that. And I think that technically in the mental health industry, they don't actually necessarily use that term sociopathy. But I could see because I think I've I've read some things that have gone with the idea of that's something that could be developed in a person based on their experiences. So I kind of wonder if maybe that's a little bit of where Sam was at. And I really wish that you kind of got to see the conversations between Sam and the lady in the well to see at what point, like what did it take for her to convince Sam that having a new, better life was worth potentially killing Rendell. And I don't know. So I I feel bad for him, but I agree with Joe that lots of people have had difficult situations, but how you choose to react to those situations helps to define who you are as a person. So I feel like he did have a choice, but I, I think that I would say at least for him as a character that he's enough gray area that I don't just out and out hate him. I guess is the best I can say. So I, I, that, I think that's a degree of sympathy, a degree of feeling like there's tragedy in there, but also having to recognize that he, at the end of the day, did make his choices. And I think you could say like the lady in the well, put him on the path to kill Rendell. And that, you know, if that was the extent of it for me, like if, if that was the extent of it, then, then I'd maybe feel a little differently about it. But, you know, like we already discussed, he killed a baby. He killed a mother on and her baby on a bus that he really didn't have to do that. Uh, and I guess some of those killings pushed it over the line. Have any sympathy left for him? Yeah, I could see that. And maybe if it was played out in a film, for instance, like you got to see, you know an actual baby, an actual woman, maybe it would be a lot easier to just write him off. And I would say as well, again, in terms of the television shows, I think they omitted a lot of that kind of thing in their presentation of him because I think they did want him to be more sympathetic in that way. 
Um, I guess what was your overall feeling on the lady in the well and how she compared or contrasted against Sam as the other big villain of the story? I mean, she is definitely the big bad for me. Like she, she's creepy as hell. Come on. Don't talk to things in wells. Just don't. It's a bad idea. Teach your kids. Come on, parents. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, and especially knowing what's coming like, yeah, she's definitely has a, there's like a, it's, she's the smart bad guy and that's scarier on a lot of levels. And she's got she's got the long game in mind, and you don't know really exactly what that is at this point, um, but like that, like you know that it's going to be bad. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's it's a different type of villain, but maybe scarier. Yeah, with with her, I think, or I guess I should say them because they don't say they don't have a gender at all. Um, with them, I think that. It is the potential she ha- they have like the potential energy you know of horror in them and that is frightening but for me personally I don't think it was enough to call the whole story horror but I think that she was interesting playing they sorry I keep saying she they were very interesting in how they they were playing Sam and using them to to get what they wanted basically so I I thought it was very interesting that dynamic and I think that the lady in the well story going forward is more interesting and maybe approaches horror more but I think here it was just like just a little taste I can't remember exactly where it is, but I feel like the lady in the well had one of the best lines too. And one that I think about a lot is uh, she says something to Bodhi along the lines of uh, kids always think they're coming in at the beginning of the story when more often than not, they're coming in at the middle or the end. And I think about that too, with just everyday life experiences too, of how we all kind of have that main character vibe about ourselves you know of like this inarticulated almost lack of object permanence for everybody else i'm the main character the story revolves around me and then forgetting that every person you meet every situation you meet you're usually coming in well in the middle of the story or the end of the story not the beginning of it um so anyway i think that was just kind of an interesting line from the lady in the well but in terms of just so that has nothing to do with how i saw her here or there as far as horror goes but i do think that maybe a lot of more of the mystery centers around that character and who they are and what their history is, which I think that is, it's a good feeling of mystery that maybe adds to a horror vibe with some of what they are able to do and how they react to things. So I think that at least for me, they add more of a horror vibe to it when it's all said and done. And then as far as various horror tropes here, um, the Locke family, they come to a large old mansion full of various secrets. So, so far the house isn't necessarily shown as haunted, but it definitely has its secrets. So I wanted to see, does this feel like a haunted house or at least a horror setting? Do you feel like it would feel differently if this whole thing was happening like in a duplex in the suburbs? 
I'm a big fan of the scary old Victorian haunted house trope. It's always going to work for me. And I do think that part of, um, part of what keeps this spooky isn't necessarily that the house is haunted so much as it's fucking spooky. Like there are supernatural things happening. There are ways to control that. There's this huge unknown factor. Um, and they seem to be a little bit isolated on that property. And I don't think being in a duplex in the suburbs, even though that can be terrifying as well, as we saw in Evil Dead Rise, um, <laughs> it's just, it's the isolation that that gets me. But yeah, it, it is a haunted house, spirits or no. For me, it maybe comes back to what Joe Hill said is about, about this kind of being like horror potter, because uh, the house, I guess, has a similar feel to me to like Hogwarts. Like there's a lot of stuff going on in the house uh, and, you know, a lot of it's unknown. There's a lot of mystery about it, uh, but it's not necessarily nefarious. It's not necessarily out to get you. The mysteries in a lot of ways can be like fun and happy. And um, so like I don't feel like it's a haunted house exactly. It's just a kind of mystery house more like um, I feel like it it definitely is a good setting for this horror story, but it's not horror because of the house. Yeah, it's a really cool setting. It doesn't feel like a, ha a haunted house. It feels like a fantasy house to me. It does feel more of like that horror Potter. It is interesting in the way Hogwarts is interesting, but not interesting in the way uh like the F leatherface's house is you know what i mean <laughs> yeah i could definitely see that i i agree though that i think that there's kind of it lends itself if there's anything that feels particularly at this point in the series in line with say gothic horror it's the house itself and that it's full of mystery. So I think it's a good setting for a story like this, but I don't necessarily, it, it's because it plays into the whole, right? Because of everything that happens along with it and the fact that it's taking place in this house adds up to horror for me. But if it was say just this house, that wouldn't necessarily be enough. But I, I think it's a good part of the cocktail that helps this series add up to horror for me. And then going back to Joe Hill's quote again from earlier, or at least perhaps a different one, is uh, as Joe Hill mentioned in, well, I guess in the same quote, anyway, as Joe Hill mentioned in the earlier quote, there is definitely a young adult fantasy vibe in the series. So fantasy was the second most picked genre for after horror on the Goodreads website, garnering 24% of people's votes for that. So does the fantasy of the story ever overwhelm or undercut the horror of it for you? It definitely didn't undercut it, but yeah, I, I can see this being more young adult. It's kind of like a young adult fantasy layered over the top of a horror. Like the one didn't take away from the other for me, um, but it was both. Like I kind of said from the beginning, I feel that this is more of a dark fantasy than horror. Um, I would, my personal feeling is that there is some horror in it, but I don't 
I just don't think that horror is the overwhelming genre or the overwhelming feel that I get from it. And what I would say more is that it's fantasy. And maybe that's because I'm more used to reading the whole like young adult fantasy thing. Because that's a lot of what I grew up with is that. I don't know. I think we've talked about before too how there's a lot of shared DNA between fantasy and horror. And I think that young adult fantasy, I I won't say universally. So it's not like no one ever dies or there's not scary situations, but I think that young adult fantasy, when you feel that vibe coming from a story tends to have this promise that things won't get too rough, maybe. And so while I feel that about this, I think it leans more horror because I feel feel like right out of the gate and throughout the story, it crosses some lines that I wouldn't expect young adult fantasy to cross. So, and that would be things like, like we talked about earlier, like having a sexual assault in there, having a baby be killed, even if it is off screen, and some of the more graphic violence that occurs that you may not really expect from a young adult series. And again, not to say it never happens. There's all these different shades and gradients, you know, out there that exist between stories. But I guess while this feels like there's some fantasy there, as Joe Hill puts it with the horror Potter thing, as we've mentioned plenty of times, I think that it takes fantasy trappings and it coats, puts a, horror coating of paint over top of all of that and that's the thing that ring rings true more for me than the fantasy vibe of it so i wouldn't say that i think young adult horror is or young adult fantasy is where it goes more i i feel it's more just dark fantasy i don't i don't think that this is young adult with the themes that are visited in it that's fair that makes sense And you did say that, sorry. So to find, to kind of finish things up with a just quick review of it, how did you like lock and key? Would you recommend it? Oh, absolutely. I really want to read the rest of this series. I was pretty surprised at how much I liked this. It's been a long time since I read a brand new comic and this was a good one to read. Yeah, I've I've kind of already said how I feel about it. I, I love the, Love the book and please go read it. Don't watch the show, (laughs) but read the book, please. (laughs) Yeah, I really like like this. I'm a sucker for a story that's written from the perspective of a child in a really cool way. And um, I would say especially Volume 2 Head Games is one of my favorites of the series so if you read this you should definitely read that um so i think it's got a lot of really interesting concepts so yeah i like it and people should read it yeah i this is this is one of my absolute favorite comic series uh it would be on my very short list of top comic series to read i think that i've read stuff that maybe is i don't know better 
maybe better written or maybe technically better in some ways, but this is one of the ones that I revisit the most often. And like I said, I, I cry at the end of it every time. Um, it's, it is really just such a good series and I can't recommend it enough to people. So yeah, if you're out there and you've only checked out the first volume or you're listening to this before you've read any of it, I, I highly recommend going out there and checking it out. If you're not hooked after the first volume, then what kind of heartless monster are you? <laughs> uh, I know that it sounds like most of us have reached most of us have read at least either the whole series or a few volumes in, but I guess any theories about what's coming or things you want to say that you think you'd like to see, and maybe we'll close off the review section on that. Well, I, I am, I'm assuming that this is explained, but I would like to see exactly who the lady of the well is because, um, in her male form, when she goes through the the door, um, she looks like the dude in the picture from the very beginning. When the was it the coach who has it on her wall? Like that kind of stuff is what I want solved. I'll say that the series is good at not creating any mysteries that it doesn't intend to explain to you. Obviously, there's always something, but I think it does a real good job of saying, "All right, we posed this question. Don't worry, there's an answer." Okay, that does make me want to read it more. And then, yeah, I I guess, like, I can't give any theories about what's coming because I've read through the whole thing. But anyway, yeah, uh, so good things to come with it. And maybe we'll do, if people like this, if they're interested, maybe we'll do a future episode on future volumes or maybe we'll do a wrap-up episode on the whole series as a review. So if people are interested in that, I guess let us know. And that's something that we can cover. Uh, but any other thoughts before we close out the episode? Just for our like cast's sake, maybe like Brianna, once you finished it, like, you know, I love all you listeners and you're awesome, but I would love to do it just for our own sake, just to talk about it again. Oh, that would be fun. I'm down. Cool. Well, then it's a plan. Maybe that'll be our summer episode or season three. We'll see. But in any case, uh, thanks for joining us on another episode of Is It Horror? And uh, join us here in two weeks when we're going to be covering Cocaine Bear. So we'll go for a completely different vibe. <laughs> Shut up. We're doing Cocaine Bear? Oh, my God. Yeah, I was trying to ever since you brought it up, I've been trying to find a place for it. That's amazing. Thank you. You bet. All right. Well, yeah. So two weeks, Cocaine Bear. Join us back here for that. I have been Steve. And I'm Brianna. I And I'm Joe. And I'm speaking over Joe. <laughs> Bye. 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 Echo, echo, echo. Don't listen to your echo. Stay out of wells. <laughs> and well houses. Seriously, doesn't he have a Game Boy or something? God. It's true. It's very old school with his ways of amusing himself. He has the Treasure Hunter 5000 or whatever it is. I mean, that, out, that house is pretty old. I'm sure they have old games. All right. I have to say, sorry, for just as a <laughs> teaser, I just, I just remembered that. Well, I didn't remember. I, I, anyways, the point is there's an 
uh, uh, issue in here that is done in the style of Calvin and Hobbes and is amazing. And yes, if nothing else gets you excited about that, be excited for that uh, issue. And that one's in volume four, so definitely at least read that far if you're a Calvin and Hobbes fan. Yes. Okay, bye for real this time. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. To stay up to date on all things Is It Horror, follow us on Instagram or X at Is It Horror Pod or email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, you can recommend us to a friend, follow and rate us on your podcast app of choice, or you can check out our store on Redbubble. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is it?